0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance Movement.
1: From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. This was a week when all the platitudes faded, all sense of limits too, and the post-Senate acquittal president came out swinging at diplomats and national security aides and prosecutors and just about anyone else critical of him. It was a week of the long knives. Attorney General William Barr intervened to soften the prison sentence of a longtime Trump advisor, but even he took to ABC News to tell his boss to pipe down.
2: To have public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases, uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job. Connecticut
1: Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat, warned of the potential abuse of power.
2: Every American is potentially in danger of this kind of retribution and revenge if the president uses the justice system as a tool of political or personal vengeance.
1: This hour on point, raw power and retribution in Washington and the pursuit of power by the president's Democratic rivals. Joining me first to take stock of what has happened in the nation's capital this week, Susan Glasser of The New Yorker magazine, where she writes the weekly column Letter from Trump's Washington. Susan, welcome to On Point.
3: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Quite a column you dropped earlier this morning. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this in the grand sweep. Uh, we, we've mentioned uh, the attorney general's actions. We're going to get to that. We can talk about it. We'll talk about it a bit more later this hour. But there were a lot of things to fold in when we think about how the president has acted uh, in just the past week alone. People ushered out of government, people condemned, uh, people questioned in terms of their, their loyalty to the president himself. How would you characterize what you've witnessed?
3: <laughs> well, it's definitely not subtle, is it? Uh, you know, it, it, it's I, I think uh, one senator called it the president's personal retribution tour. And -hmm. what's striking is that it's continued on. Uh, You know, uh, it's, of course, an aspect we're already familiar with of the Trump era that so much happens, it's hard to remember uh, what it was like eight days ago. But uh, it's worth noting that the president is not getting over impeachment, but in fact, seems increasingly and still very much fixated on vengeance on rooting out what he perceives to be disloyalty inside of the administration uh, and really focused on retribution uh, at the expense of moving forward and and even potentially at the expense of his own political benefit, you would think. In what way? Well, you know, look, uh, Republicans uh, like Democrats understand you have to win an election by presenting worldview to something, President Trump, because he so often conflates uh, himself with the national interest or with uh, the interest of his administration, uh, that's that's a pretty hard thing to campaign on for people.
1: The president's allies on Fox News and other conservative pundits, some of the more as. Uh, stridently pro-Trump figures in the Republican Senate have effectively cheered on some of what the president has done. Give us a little flavor uh, for those for whom some of these events were a little dizzying over the course of the past week. Give us a flavor of what actually happened and why it matters.
3: Well, you're right about the the cheering on in the alternate media universes. And I think that does explain a lot of why we're we're seeing this, Uh, you know, in Trump's world and the the reinforcing world of the TV that he looks at and the radio he looks at. He's a noble uh, anti-corruption crusader who is uh, doing battle with the evil forces of the deep state who've conspired against him since the beginning of his presidency, uh, you know it's it's complicated and elaborate, and I'm struck by how often uh, they will even bring up things that that you and I have probably never even heard of. Uh, mm-hmm. But the pre- the president, remember, he he had his national prayer breakfast rant, and then he had his victory celebration, uh, which featured many uh, Republican members of Congress who had helped to defend him during impeachment. And from there, what he has done is he's essentially gone after witnesses in the impeachment. Uh, saga, or even people who figured in it in it very, very minor roles. Uh, and for example, there was a, a woman at the Pentagon who wrote emails uh, trying to figure out what to do about the $400 million in aid that Trump had demanded uh, be withheld from Ukraine, even though legally she was not clear that there was any real basis for doing so. She's now been denied a promotion. Alexander Vindman, the lieutenant colonel at the national security council who listened in on the call with ukraine's president and was troubled by it he was frog marched out of the white house along with his twin brother who by the way was not a witness in the impeachment so you know this but, is but a i think level... but i think
1: showed up in the hearing right like showed up behind him to support his brother if i'm not mistaken
3: well he showed up in the hearing to support his brother and also he also worked on the national security council as a lawyer and uh, Vindman And his brother, I understand, were at the initial meeting with the uh, National Security Council lawyers in which Vindman expressed concerns about what he'd heard on the phone call.
1: I only mentioned the fact that the brother was there in part because sometimes it seems to me as though some of this anger or retribution is because things become public rather than that they've occurred. That is, this woman uh, at the Pentagon, uh, you know, up for a job there – It was because her emails were released publicly. I don't know that – there's no sense that there's retribution taken against her uh, because of the objection per se. It feels as though it's because we know about it and because the public is aware that somebody internally had a different idea than what the president wanted to have happen.
3: Absolutely. I think that's a very important point. Uh, Optics reign supreme in this White House, in many White Houses, but in particular for Donald Trump who sees himself – Uh, not only as a creature of the media, but a master manipulator of it. Uh, That came out in impeachment itself. Remember when uh, it was Gordon Sondland, who also was ousted as part of this purge. Uh, ambassador to the EU. Absolutely. And he said uh, that, in fact, Trump cared about announcing the investigations by the Ukrainians even more than what happened in the investigation. So the optics reign supreme. And, you know, to me, that is a big lesson uh, here as well, that Trump remains focused on uh, the perception of his power uh, because he believes that projecting strength is a form of strength itself. And, you know, what I wrote about in my column this week was that really echoed with me in my experience in the former Soviet Union uh, with sort of aspiring authoritarians. They are looking to do things that at times uh, seem over the top to us. Uh, I, you know, the retribution tour and the vengeance that Trump has been wreaked, it's hard to see that uh, in any other context, frankly, Then he wants to communicate in an over-the-top way, do not cross me.
1: There was a line that jumped out at me from your column uh, quoting, uh, I guess, a former Soviet official or maybe it was – I guess it was a Russian official by that point. And you wrote that he said to you, power lies in making people accept the unacceptable.
3: Well, that's right. i just been thinking uh, very much about this uh, election I went to in the, uh, Azerbaijan, the former Soviet country of Azerbaijan, in 2003. And uh, the old dictator was ailing and died a couple of months later and was seeking to install his son uh, in power, uh, not popular, seen as a, a playboy, not qualified for the job. Uh, there was a real uh, dissident movement at this point in time, an actual opposition party. Thousands of people in the streets. Not only did the Sun win an election that Western observers said was rigged uh, and not free and fair, but over the top with eighty percent of the vote. And I said to this Russian the day afterwards, who'd also been there, you know, why, why, if they're going to steal the election, why be so insulting to people's intelligence as to, you know, steal it? Nobody believes that he won eighty percent, and. The Russian said to me, that's the point. You're missing the point. The point is not to have 55 percent. It's to have 80 percent. It's for people to be forced to accept the implausible that really shows your power and strength.
1: Um, you know, nobody is saying that the president's going to do that any moment soon for Don Jr. There there are folks who say <laughs> this is uh, this is uh, you know, It's Trump being Trump. Republican allies will say, look, love him, hate him. We kind of love the guy. But you know, you got to let him blow off steam. The, the attorney general, I think it was I – mean, it might not have been the attorney general. But uh, forgive me, some of the president's allies, uh, Lou Dobbs among them, a very different figure than the attorney general, nonetheless said, think of all that the president has gone through. Doesn't he deserve to uh, – uh, to be able to express himself, doesn't he deserve, deserve to be able to run the government that he heads? Uh, you know, on Wednesday, the president hailed Attorney General Bill Barr for pulling back the Justice Department's call for a tough prison sentence for convicted Trump adviser Roger Stone. Then the president ranted against the career federal prosecutors involved in making the original sentencing recommendation. Somebody said he put out a tweet, and the tweet, you're based it on that. We have killers, we have murderers all over the place, nothing happens. And then they put a man in jail and destroy his life, his family, his wife, his children.
2: Nine years in jail, it's a disgrace. In the meantime, Comey walks around making book deals, the people that launched the scam investigation, and what they did is a disgrace.
1: Uh, The president was making his remarks beside uh, Ecuadorian President Lenin Moreno. Uh, So you're hearing uh, uh, Moreno's interpreter uh, talking in the background there. Comey did have one book deal, not multiple book deals, whatever the the specifics there. Uh, In the couple minutes we have left, uh, Susan Glasser, what makes this different than a rant? What makes this week different than what came before the president went through the impeachment process?
3: Well, I think that's a good point, actually, to show that it's not just tweets. It's not just ranting, but it's actions. And that, I think, is why you're hearing the heightened level of alarm, this concern that the president is uh, essentially threatening the independence of the Justice Department and saying that there should be a different standard of justice, putting his hand on the scale for Roger Stone, who not only is Trump's oldest uh, political advisor, uh, but directly seemed to have been the link between Uh, WikiLeaks and the hacked Democratic emails and giving that early intelligence to the Trump campaign through the president himself in 2016. So a very significant figure. So this is not just about ranting and raving. It's about The perception that justice is uh, different is being rigged on behalf of a key Trump advisor. And so I think that's why you're hearing this heightened level of concern. It also explains we haven't talked about it, but Attorney General uh, Bill Barr's extraordinary interview yesterday in which he appeared to criticize the president uh, for publicly intervening in this case in a way that compromised Barr's ability to do his job. And yet Barr himself is such a compromised figure that there are you know, many Democrats and critics of the president who do not take him at face value.
1: Uh, we're hearing there from Susan Glasser, offering us not only a canonical concerns about the president's actions, but some canine ones as well. Uh, Susan Glasser, <laughs> a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine, author of the weekly column "Letter from Trump's Washington," she's also co-author of the forthcoming book "The Man Who Ran Washington: The Life and Times of James A. Baker III." Thanks so much for your time today, Susan.
3: Thank you, David.
1: When we return, we'll pick up more about the Attorney General's actions, dive more deeply into the week that just played out. And later on, we'll talk about the Democratic eyes on the prize. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com slash onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
4: ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balanced scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions— and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at IBMS.bu.edu.
1: This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. A bit later on, we'll look at what happened this week in the Democratic race for the presidential nomination and a bit more. Right now, let's burrow more deeply into this week's news from Washington. And from Washington, we're joined by Molly Ball. She's national political correspondent for Time magazine. Welcome back, Molly. Thanks. Glad to be here. And we also have Gerald Seib. He's executive Washington editor for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for taking the time to join us today, Jerry.
5: Happy to be with you.
1: So let's start with that uh, That what Bill Barr did this week and what Bill Barr had to say this week, Uh, and let's start with that interview that's been making news. Uh, Yesterday, uh, the attorney general, William Barr, gave an interview to ABC News' Pierre Thomas in which he pushed back against the president, saying presidential tweet storms and other criticism were making his job impossible.
2: I am responsible for everything that happens in the department, but the thing I have most responsibility for are the issues that are brought to me for decision. And I will make those decisions based on what I think is the right thing to do, and I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody, and I said at the time, whether it's Congress, newspaper, editorial boards, or the president, I'm going to do what I think is right. And I think the, the I cannot do my job here at the department uh, with a constant background commentary that that undercuts me.
1: So Jerry Seib, a rare rebuke from the president from both one of his closest allies and also from a cabinet secretary, right? And at the same time, there's a context to these remarks. And the context oh, is what what played out here with Roger Stone. Walk us through that, uh, the, the days and the sequence of what happened at the first part of this week that led
5: to that interview. Yeah, well, I was just going to say there's a lot of context here. But, right. Uh, so you had a remarkable sequence of events. You had – Uh, The Justice Department uh, making a sentencing recommendation uh, in the trial of Roger Stone, a presidential friend who's uh, been convicted and who's awaiting sentencing. And it was a recommendation for a harsh sentence up to nine years. Um, The president tweets, that's ridiculous. It's uh, unfair. It's a miscarriage of justice. Uh, The prosecutors have gotten carried away. And then the Justice Department, the, de- the next day, pulls back the sentencing recommendation, um, offers a new version that says, well, the judge should just decide what the sentence should be. And that original, original recommendation was too harsh, seeming to respond to the president's uh, tweet. Um, and then four prosecutors who are working on the case resign the case. One of them resigns the Justice Department entirely. And then, basically, abuse begins to rain down on Bill Barr because he seems to have allowed the Justice Department to be turned into a tool of the president's wishes and a uh, an agency that isn't independent but that responds to the president's desires to help his friends and hurt his enemies. Then Bill Barr decides to make a statement in an ABC interview that is directly designed to directly refute that and to say directly to the president, stop it. Stop telling us what to do. You're making my life impossible. And I think what Bill Barr is trying to do there are three things. First of all, he's trying to protect his own integrity. Second of all, he is trying to send a signal to the president to stop making my life impossible. But third, he's likely also trying to prevent a mass mutiny at the Justice Department from prosecutors who didn't sign up to be pushed around by the president, who take seriously the idea that they have their own integrity and their own independence uh, and that justice is supposed to be blind. So I think all those things were going on in one piece there. And, Jerry, like, let's let's just take a moment to – just do a little
1: acknowledgement here. Roger Stone, a dirty trickster for President Nixon back in the day, a longtime Trump advisor, an operative of the 2016 campaign. As Susan Glasser mentioned a few minutes ago on the show, uh, he had been, a, in essence, a, a conduit, it appears, according to prosecutors, to WikiLeaks uh, for uh, essentially uh, certain kinds of communication about what kinds of uh, leaks of information from Democratic emails would help them uh, during the 2016 campaign. Not contrite. You know, uh, didn't plead guilty as some folks who have been prosecuted in, in related things have uh, and who at least by, in the account of prosecutors essentially seem to menace the judge in some of his online postings, uh, which right. might help characterize what happened there. So this is an unusual case and they felt overruled not just by central justice, which with with whom they conferred, but by the attorney general himself.
5: Right. And and it was uh, a case in which um, Roger Stone committed the ultimate sin in the eyes of many prosecutors, which is to seem to flaunt the prosecution and the judge and almost mock them and says, I'm not taking the idea that I should be remorseful seriously at all. I think there are two footnotes here worth noting, which are also remarkable. One is that the the president didn't just um, go after the prosecutors. He went after the judge in this case via Twitter and after a juror, which is really remarkable. Uh, and and that's I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like that before. Um, and, and then secondly, I think um, that m- more broadly, I, I think we are kind of an inflection point for the Republican Party here in which they have to decide whether the party is going to try to move on beyond um, impeachment, uh, as most senators seem to want to do, or whether they're going to just wallow in retaliation, which seems to be what the president wants to do. And so there, that is also a broader context in which this is all playing out. Molly Ball, I want to
1: uh, bring in a, a question from a listener which I- is about these very developments uh, and see, see what your thoughts were on that. Uh, Mel is a lifetime, uh, lifelong independent. She called from the front range in Utah uh, to share with us her thoughts on Bill Barr uh, in response to his interview where he said Trump is making it impossible to do his job.
0: The AG's statement doesn't sound sincere or consistent with any of his behavior in the past. He says that it makes his job impossible to do, and yet the president had not a single negative thing to say about um, Barr criticizing him publicly that's absolutely inconsistent with the behavior and statements of both of those two people.
1: I got to tell you, Molly, it did strike me that, that Barr has been not only you know, a supporter of the president, but has been an incredible uh, ally for him as the president exerts sort of this notion of almost unbridled executive authority and power, right? Um, how do you reconcile the, uh, Barr's rebuke uh, this week with Barr's notion of the president's uh, – uh, what limits there are or aren't on the president and his strong support for the president in the past?
6: Yeah, well, I think that the most generous reading of Barr's actions is in the sort of dichotomy between the two things that you just laid out. Barr does not see himself as a mere henchman of Donald Trump, as a Roy Cohn, as an enforcer for him, as the president's personal lawyer. Rather, he has a very uh, detailed uh, and congruent theory of executive power. It's rather exotic uh, by the standards of most uh, legal experts, but he does see this in a philosophical uh point of view he gave that that famous Federalist society speech uh, that that was d- deplored by many critics but but where he laid out this theory of the case that the president does have these nearly unbridled executive powers so that is more about the office than about the man and we see that the way Trump sees it is very much about himself personally and so but but I think it as the listener said you know it's clear, that this was a calculated move by Bill Barr. We've uh, it's been reported that he he discussed it with the president beforehand. So this was very much about sending a public signal. And because of Barr's actions to defend the president to date, including arguably you know misrepresenting the Mueller report and many other things, uh, have decreased his his credibility uh, in a lot of quarters and made it harder for him to be seen as a man of integrity when he does make this kind of public pushback. And I think a cynic would also note that although he did make this. Uh, very unambiguous public statement against the president, he didn't actually do anything about what the president has been doing. He didn't, you know, rescind that recommendation or undo it to try to you know, get the prosecutors reinstated who resigned in protest. Uh, he, he merely made a statement uh, and 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 many uh, of his critics have said, well, this was just about trying to mollify the, the rank and file of the Justice Department. He doesn't actually intend to do anything to, to rein in the president. And we see in fact the president still doing exactly what Bill Barr told him not to do, tweeting about the case this morning.
1: I just saw a tweet uh, from earlier today, uh, Donald J. Trump, real Donald Trump uh, account. It says, quote, the president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case. A.G. Barr, that is the president quoting Bill Barr, that he says, this doesn't mean that I do not have as president the legal right to do so. I do. But I have so far chosen not to. The president saying he has the authority to intervene in the case as Barr appropriated for himself, which he does, it seems, have the right to do, but unless appropriated himself the right to have discretion in the Stone case, usually in such politically charged cases, my understanding is they tend to be left to the political staff. Molly, I also want to ask you, this seems to be a week in which we saw a lot of people uh, brought closed in uh, who are seen as loyalists and a lot of people purged by the president, as Susan Glasser earlier alluded to, uh, who are seen as insufficiently loyal. So uh, this week, we saw uh, announcements that Hope Hicks would be returning from a brief two-year sojourn with the Murdochs over at Fox Corporation. She'd been a longtime assistant at the president, being brought back in. A guy named John McEntee, I think that's how we pronounce the name, uh, who's going to lead the White House Office of Personnel. Molly, remind us who he was, remind us why he might be a controversial choice to To run that office,
6: Uh, well, as you say, you you know, he he's he's a longtime uh, loyalist, uh, and and the president's uh, obsession with loyalty borders on paranoia. He he has always (laughs) been since the day he took office. He's been obsessed with. Uh, and, and, and he's not wrong to perceive that there were a lot of people, there have been a lot of people in the administration who were not necessarily uh, his biggest fans. We see this in the deluge of leaks on a daily basis, uh, the constant, uh, usually anonymous criticism from within the administration of the president's own actions. Uh, so, you know, he still looks around and sees himself surrounded by people who may not have his best interests at heart. Uh, but I think the trend has has been that he, as he becomes increasingly unfettered, as he survives things like impeachment, uh, he increasingly feels that he has free reign to to, to get rid of those people he finds suspicious, uh, whether that's warranted or not, uh, and to surround himself by people with whom he, he has a great deal of comfort. And these two are, are definitely in that category.
1: McAtee trusted, although he had been fired by the president's former chief of staff over uh, during an investigation into allegations of financial cl- crimes. Um, in addition, there were these uh, other actions taken. Uh, Jesse Liu, uh, Jerry Seib, was uh, nominated for a Treasury Secretary uh, uh, – undersecretary position. Uh, in addition, we had uh, uh, a number of folks uh, forced out. Uh, Elaine McCusker was going to be nominated to be the Pentagon's comptroller. She was done. There were uh, – <laughs> the Vindman brothers were shuffled out the door. Is this a normal sequence of events in a White House where there are controversies uh, or is this – is there any other way to look at this, Jerry Saib, as a question of uh, the president's perceiving vindication and taking vengeance?
5: Well, you also have to add to the list Maria Yovanovitch, who was the ambassador to Ukraine, who resigned uh, formally from the State Department um, this week because I don't think she really had a job left over there. Look, I mean, the, I think the president has made it very clear in both actions and words um, that he wants to settle scores after impeachment. And as I said earlier, I think that this brings him to a point of departure with other Republicans who would like to take a deep breath, uh, having declared victory by acquitting the president in the Senate trial and impeachment and move on and try to show that they can still govern, they're interested in governing. Um, and that's not where the president is, head, president's head is at. I, you know, I would I would note that there's, you know, th- this is not being met with universal cheers with uh, among all of his normal fans. I mean, my, our own editorial page is The Wall Street Journal, and I, don't, I have nothing to do with the editorial right. page. I come from the news separate. side. <laughs> We're very separate, so I don't know right. what they do. They don't know what I do. But I noted with interest there is a an editorial – in our, on our editorial page, a conservative editorial page that's, that's you know, been uh, helpful to the president in other um, in other contexts, uh, that is headlined, Trump's own worst enemy, and it's referring to Trump himself. And the final paragraph reads, he is helping the Democrats who are running against the senators who voted to acquit, and he's making millions of voters ask if they really want to take a risk on giving him so much power for another four years. Uh, and I think you see in those words a desire among some Trump friends and allies and conservatives and Republicans to move on and to talk about the economy, to talk about the, where the country is going, to do to be normal. And the president doesn't seem to want to do that, and that's a point of friction. Where it goes, I don't know, but it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting point for um, for the Republicans to arrive at.
1: Molly Ball. Uh- there's the mention of Yovanovich at a speech at uh, Georgetown. She really s- sort of came out against the leadership of the nation when it comes to diplomatic affairs abroad, uh, the secretary of state, although not by name uh, and the, the leaders in the administration on this and John Kelly, uh, the former uh, chief of staff for the president. Uh, he came out saying that, uh, that Vindman did his job by calling things as he say, saw them, by testifying under oath to what he believed took place and what he believed happened. Uh, and really saying that the Ukraine uh, initiative was inappropriate, deeply inappropriate. Uh, how uh, important is, are those statements by, by John Kelly in this context?
6: You know, it's actually been surprising to me to date how few former administration officials have spoken out against the president, given the mm-hmm. uneasy relationships that so many of them have had, given how many of them have been fired in many cases, uh, uh, not in a dignified manner, humiliated. Uh, fi- humiliated, exactly fired by tweet or or fired in some other uh, undignified way. And so, uh, and yet we have seen a lot of forbearance today. To, you know, General Mattis being very restrained in his criticisms in his in his book uh there have been a couple of tell-alls but but really not the sort of deluge given uh how many how what a what a massive exodus there have been from this administration so I think you know we're we're, we're starting to see that we, and we're seeing it um you know we saw the um the, the the fruits I guess of the president's difficult relationship with his own executive branch uh in the course of the house impeachment proceedings when so many of these career officials who'd been sort of ordered not to, to speak, uh, nonetheless came forward and, and testified and uh, felt that it was more important for whatever reason to, to tell the truth as they saw it than to obey the president. And, and we see now more and more of these former administration officials uh, willing to speak out. And, and I think what it is, is it's, it's very simple and very earnest. They feel a sense of alarm. They look at what the president is doing and they see a man who, at least in their view, is out of control. And so they feel compelled to speak. I think it is uh, absolutely the case that if the president were doing what, you know, as Jerry alluded to it, the Republicans in the Senate would like, which is uh, sort of pretend impeachment never happened, move on, pretend to be at least a little bit chastened. uh, I don't think we would see quite this same uh, flood of outspokenness.
5: You know, and David, I would just add that Go the, ahead, John. one of the iron one of the ironies here is that this happens just as it was. There were many signs that the impeachment process uh, actually helped the president in his bid for reelection. He he exited impeachment in better shape than he entered it, which is maybe surprising to some, but m- maybe also suggests Democrats overreached. Helped him in, in any the polls. case. Yeah, I mean his, mm-hmm. his job approval rating yeah, yeah. went up, not down. His supporters are even more fired up than they ever were. Um, the, the Republican Party had completely closed ranks behind him. There was there were no really fractures left, except maybe Mitt Romney in in Utah. And I think Republicans are, are baffled because they the, they think the president should have just accepted the fact that he came out of this in great shape and moved on. But now we're talking about this instead. And that's the that's the agony of the moment for Republicans, I think.
1: Interesting uh, uh, partnerships between John Bolton and John Kelly, who inside the administration fought hammer and tongs and now both sort of united and standing up for each other's reputation and uh, uh, uh criticizing the president. Axios reporting he's been asking, the president is asking for names of more people uh, he should fire, and he's certainly receiving re- support from some Senate Republicans like Lindsey Graham calling for more investigations of the president's critics. Folks, we'd like you all to stick around. Molly and Jerry, please, as well. We're talking about the weekend news when we return, the Democratic race to take on President Trump. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, China recalculated the toll from the coronavirus and came up with a much bigger number of those who are sick and those who have died. And the world braces both for an epidemic and the possible economic fallout. The venerable newspaper chain McClatchy files for bankruptcy, raising questions about the journalism and the journalists in the communities they serve. And the state of North Dakota settles with two Native American tribes and several individual voters over North Dakota's voter ID law. Uh, The state agreed to accept tribal IDs and to allow people who don't have a residential address to vote. My guest this hour, Gerald Seib. He's executive Washington editor for The Wall Street Journal. And Molly Ball. She's national political correspondent for Time magazine. So let's turn now to the Democrats, those who want to achieve the power and uh, prestige of the White House. After the first primary vote on Tuesday in New Hampshire, leading Democratic candidates addressed rival crowds of supporters.
5: A campaign that some said shouldn't be here at all has shown that we are here to stay.
3: I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat
5: Donald Trump.
3: Our campaign is built for the long haul. And we are just getting started.
4: It ain't over, man. We're just getting started.
5: count two. We are going to unite together and defeat the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country. My guess is
1: most listeners recognize those voices. Hard not to recognize that last one. But just in case, that was Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders urging on supporters this week after the New Hampshire primaries. Molly Ball, what's your takeaway from what we saw transpire uh, in New Hampshire? We at least figured out what happened by the end of the evening. Tell us at the end of the week how It
6: was so went. refreshing, wasn't it, to, to have an election where they actually counted the votes and told us who won, like within 24 hours. Uh, and I was there at the that, that second clip you played with Amy Klobuchar, who I think it's fair to say had the surprise of the night uh, when she surged into third place, uh, only a few thousand votes behind uh, the first and second place finishers. And what that tells you is, I mean, when you come out of New Hampshire with three candidates camp- candidates Candidates uh, around 20%, nobody reaching 30%. Uh, and a couple of candidates hot on their heels. This is a remarkably muddled and fluid race. This is, uh, you know, it's sort of a running joke that, that pundits are always declaring Democrats to be in disarray. But they really are. And it's it's remarkable when you're on the ground talking to voters, how much individual indecision they feel, right? This is not the case that it's sort of just a stalemate with a bunch of people really strongly committed to a bunch of different candidates. What's fracturing the field is that a lot of people are really undecided. And on the ground in New Hampshire, you would go to candidates' events, and really, even on the eve of the election, they're saying, well, I, I still can't decide. I like multiple candidates. I'm trying to find the one I think has the best chance to win, but I don't know who that is. Um but the beneficiaries of that have been, uh, well, the the whatever the opposite of beneficiary, the per, the victim of all of this has been Joe Biden. He, he's been the national front runner for basically in the, base in the nine months that he's since he got into the race, and he has undergone a remarkable deflation, based I think just on voters' assessment of his performance, uh, and uh, that has meant that there's no obvious person to succeed him in that lane so, of sort of mainstream moderate Democrats. And so you have Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar fighting over that lane, even as, you know, Warren, Elizabeth Warren seems to be struggling to to stay in the sort of liberal lane.
1: So before we move on from Biden, we, we're going to take a few calls uh, or a few questions that listeners posed us this week about this, because I think it's, it's good for them to get some feedback from people who are enmeshed in this. So, so Molly Ball, Jim called from Omaha, Nebraska, and he asked us this about Biden's campaign funds. I've gotten uh, numerous
5: uh, texts from the Biden administration, which suggests
4: to me that he's running out of cash to effectively compete in the upcoming primaries. Uh, Do you think this is true? So what do you say, Molly?
6: Yes, it's definitely true that the that, that Biden is in danger of going broke. He's always been a weak fundraiser; uh, that was always one of his uh, weaknesses as a candidate in his you know previous presidential runs and and, and in the Senate, uh, and that's continued into his presidential campaign. Uh, and it, and You know, for someone who was the nominal frontrunner and the nominal sort of establishment candidate, it has been really striking uh, how difficult it's been for him to raise funds that suggests not only an inability on his part, but a a lack of confidence from the sort of donor class of the Democratic Party that they don't see him. They've never seen him as invincible and they were holding back, waiting to see uh, whether he could make the sale with voters. So, you know, Biden is clearly determined to sort of live off the land until we get to South Carolina at the end of this month. Uh, I'm just imagining it, Joe Biden
1: biovacking on this, uh, this campaign.
6: <laughs> uh, but, but, but the the fundraising issue is going to be now, now that being said, the, the desperation texts and emails are, are, are sort of standard fare for, for campaigns. I don't know that, so that there's, necessarily there's scare text is the scare texts as well. They're always trying to scare their supporters into giving more money, but in this case I do think that there's a kernel of truth to the idea that the campaign is short on funds.
1: Terry side, we're going to talk about some of the folks who are at the top uh, uh, ranks in, in New Hampshire and, and who who are going out feeling ascended at the moment. But we have had these questions from listeners. One of them is calling about one of the folks who did not fare as well. Cheryl has called from New Orleans, Louisiana, with a question about the status of Elizabeth Warren after Iowa and New Hampshire.
6: Don't you think it's prematurely uh, you are prematurely declaring the death of Elizabeth Warren's campaign? especially considering everyone did the same to Amy Klobuchar before her, her uh, great debate performance.
1: So Jerry Seib question was not specifically aimed at you in terms of what you were doing. But at the same time, <laughs> is the press, is the political establishment, are people, uh, you know, uh, you know, writing Elizabeth Warren out of the story when she she placed better than Joe Biden. And yet people are all focusing on Biden and not on her.
5: Yeah, well, look, first of all, I just want to declare I did not write off Amy Klobuchar. I predicted her rise three times before it actually happened. So on that one, I'm good. But it, look, there's something to what the callers, to the caller's point. There is this tendency to reach sweeping conclusions after Iowa and New Hampshire. We see it every four years. We all engage in it every four years, and we all ought to just sit back and take a breath and let the voters uh, have a bigger say in this process. Now, in terms of Elizabeth Warren, I think one of the things – that is contributing to this perception is that the fall has been pretty dramatic for her, too. You know, if you go back, and I went back this week and looked, and if you, in the first week of October, she was actually, for a brief time, ahead of Joe Biden, leading the entire pack in national polls. And so I think expectations were higher for her than the reality of Iowa and New Hampshire provided. So that's one problem. It's kind of dashed expectations. I think the other problem is uh, a sense that Bernie is consolidating the liberal lane. It's not just that she did badly. It's just that it had to be one or the other and maybe it's going to be him i will say that she has a very big organization in nevada she's going to go plant her flag there and that much as joe biden is planting his flag in south carolina and saying here's where i make my comeback she is doing the same thing in nevada which votes in caucuses on february 22nd so we'll see and we probably ought to just wait and see and i think that's a reasonable point you know you
1: mentioned nevada uh there was always – there was a lot of buzz over who this major culinary union, uh, which is a big player in Vegas and I guess more generally in Nevada but particularly in Las Vegas in getting out the vote uh, and particularly Latino vote there, uh, where they were going to go. And they released this sort of uh, response I guess to questionnaire they had sent out to candidates that laid out uh, their positions and issues and particularly on care. and it did not – Go flatteringly for Bernie Sanders because some of the unions have won hard-fought uh, health care policies and benefits that they don't want to subsume into some larger government program. And the spokeswoman for the union said they've received hundreds of attacks in the form of mentions, DMs, calls, and emails, including threats to personal safety. Uh, and the spokeswoman said that she and uh, – uh, told reporters that she and an, another official there had been doxxed—that that is, their personal addresses revealed publicly for for – essentially inviting further personal abuse. And the union, if I recall correctly, didn't endorse anyone, as it turned out. What's the what is uh, the takeaway from that? And, and my sense is, is that they're essentially implying this is Bernie Sanders uh, 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 followers who are doing this, Jerry. But what is the takeaway from what's playing out there in Las Vegas right now?
5: Well, first of all, they're clearly implying that, if not stating that explicitly. And, and I think there, there are two takeaways from that. One is that one of the advantages that Bernie Sanders has is this incredibly passionate group of supporters, much like Donald Trump supporters. But the problem with that is they turn off some Democrats um, with their style and their tactics. And they raise the specter that um, they will stand in the way of the Democratic Party uniting at the end of this process Um, The second takeaway is that the substantive problem at the heart of this was always going to be there for Bernie Sanders and to some extent Elizabeth Warren, which is a Medicare for all plan, says to union workers who have made sacrifices in terms of wages for years, if not decades, in order to get good health coverage, that they have to now give that health coverage up. And that does not go down well with some union audiences. And that's been discussed in Democratic debates as a hypothetical In this statement from the Culinary Union, you saw the real world um, version of that problem come to life. And that's not a small problem, I think.
1: And yet, you know, you would think the union's the natural allies. Uh, Molly Ball, does this offer an opportunity for uh, a Pete Buttigieg or an Amy Klobuchar to make inroads?
6: Well, you know, it's interesting to me that despite their strongly worded, uh, objections to Sanders, the, the the Culinary Union did not then try to put the thumb on the scale for a candidate that would be more to its liking on policy. Uh, you know, I was a reporter in Las Vegas for six years. The Culinary Union is very powerful, and as we see from this episode, uh, impossible to intimidate. They're tough, they're fighters, and they know where they stand, but they're not helping, right? If the problem that the Democratic Party is having is that they can't decide which of the sort of non-Bernie candidates to elevate, uh, By not making an endorsement, the union – and, you know, this is a union that uh, always likes to pick a winner – Likes to be on the winning side, uh, but it means that they're not stepping out there and taking that risk of actually directing their members uh, where they think they should uh, give their votes, which which means that potentially we're this race is going to continue to be muddled as the sort of moderate candidates uh, snipe at each other. Well, 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 Bernie Sanders, you know, glides to another victory with uh, with a quarter of the vote so that that is the situation that has so many Democratic insiders. Uh, panicked and concerned about the how they're going to come out of this with a nominee.
1: So to that question, Molly Paul, uh, Andrew called in from Dearborn, Michigan and had a question about the divide that he's perceived between moderates and progressives in the Democratic Party.
4: My question is about uh, this divide in the Democratic Party
2: between moving to the left versus moving to the center. And I'm wondering what wisdom we have from history, past elections with
0: an
1: incumbent um, and also what data there is out there that might justify the strategy of moving to the left versus
4: moving to the center.
1: And Molly, you know, Jerry mentioned a minute to go the notion of a lane for, for moderates. And, you know, it sounded me in some ways, you know, are Klobuchar and, and Buttigieg crowding each other out in certain ways, allowing Sanders to take sweep sort of the the table when it comes to people more on the left as 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 Warren has declined a little bit there. There's that that question of lanes, and then this question Andrew raises about is there an ability to knit people back together? Could somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who is criticized by Sanders followers as being uh, something of a, a corporatist or, or a, a Republican in in, in nice clothing? Uh, is there a way for him to make an appeal if he were able to get people or, or Klobuchar were able to get people to rally around her? Or could, could a guy like Bernie Sanders, uh, somebody who's late to a democratic uh, field, uh, actually reach out to people who are moderates, uh, suburbanites who might say, this isn't entirely for me, but I, I am trying to figure out ways to vote for the Democrat.
6: Yeah, all of the candidates are making an electability argument very overtly at this point because they know that that is what is preoccupying democratic voters. And these lanes are somewhat fluid. I mean, I've met people at Bernie Sanders events who said that they were previously for Joe Biden. I've met people uh who who are fans of Amy Klobuchar who say they su- supported, you know, Bernie Sanders 4 years ago. So, voters are quirky and individual, but in the main, you definitely do see uh, a clumping of different types of voters. And this is a perennial argument within both parties of whether to to do the proverbial bold colors, right? Take a strong ideological stand that communicates your values to voters in a way that they may find compelling because it's sort of less wishy-washy, even if it's far out there, or to move to the center. And there is, to the to the caller's question, a quite robust political science literature on the question of, uh, you know, candidates who are perceived as more moderate, more centrist uh, more toward the middle, uh, do tend to do better in competitive elections. Uh, In fact, one of the uh, explanations for for Donald Trump's win in many states in 2016 is that he was perceived as more moderate uh, than Hillary Clinton by many voters. Uh, So, uh, you know, voters are going to generally go with their heart and then rationalize it (laughs) on the basis of electability, right? They're going to vote for who they like, uh, but tell themselves that they're voting for the person that they think is going to win.
1: Although... Uh, so fascinating to hear so many callers and so many voter interviews in which they seem to be playing political pundit themselves as they get there. Uh, I, I do want to take – we only have a couple minutes left, uh, Jerry Seid. But just in the brief time we have left, I want to talk about Mike Bloomberg. I think it's time mm-hmm. the guy has dropped something like nine figures on ads and campaigning so far and he's going to spend a lot more and never miss it. Uh, Bloomberg, it seems to me, is is able to get in the head of uh, of Donald Trump in an almost unique way because – He is a billionaire. He is a self-made man. He's done all the things that Trump has said he's been able to do. On the other hand, a lot of people are going through a rich archival history of things that Bloomberg has said and done that seemed almost genetically engineered to offend Democratic voters. How is Mike Bloomberg going to deal with that and address that as he seeks to get enough of a national base that he can't be ignored in the debates and in the vote?
5: Well, first of all, he gets in Donald Trump's head and under his skin like nobody else. And so you know, that's in this context a, a campaign asset and attribute, I would say, for Michael Bloomberg. So that's probably the first thing to say. The uh, second thing to say, I think, is that the scenario that we're talking about here is exactly the scenario Bloomberg had in mind when he got into this race in the first place. You have a, a slump, if not a collapse, by Joe Biden You have a rise by Bernie Sanders that just petrifies many Democrats, and you have the president looking more viable as a a reelection candidate, and that scares people to go to Michael Bloomberg. That's the scenario he envisioned. That's the one we're seeing. So there is that. Now, there is this problem, which you just pointed to, David, which is that he has said and done things that Democrats don't really like. But the proposition of the Michael Bloomberg is that will matter less in the long run than the ability to beat Donald Trump. And that's what I'm selling here.
1: I think we're going to be probably picking up both strands of that story of Michael Bloomberg. He has money to spend and the patience to do it. Jerry Seib of The Wall Street Journal, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. And thanks to you, Molly Ball of Time magazine. Thank you for having me. You continue the conversation and get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. And don't forget to follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. You've been listening to On Point. I'm David Folkenflake. Thanks so much.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken? A podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
4: ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains: the big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the nineteen twenties. Right, that was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balance scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about well. What if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, mid term, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balance scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find
0: the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.